We're going to be in Judges chapter 2, if you'd please turn your Bibles there. Judges chapter 2, I'm going to begin by praying for us. Father, we come before you with repentant hearts, desiring to learn, desiring to hear from your scripture today. I pray through the power of your spirit that you would bring to light um, your heart, your commands, and your grace. Would you draw us deeper to know you, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start in verse 6 here. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Every now and then we have these wake-up call kind of moments that remind us of our age. And yes, I know the average age of the people in the room that I'm speaking to right now. But I've had several of these recently, like watching more and more hair disappear from the top of my head, or waking up with a a new pain in my body and wondering, is this just here to stay now? But a more pointed thing happened recently, where I was in conversation with some young 20-something Gen Z friends of mine, where I made a reference to the Spice Girls, and it dawned on me that I needed to ask, do you know who the Spice Girls are? And it's that realization that people who are barely older than 9-11 don't have the same childhood memories as you. They don't remember the Y2K scare. They've always had the internet. They never had to choose their favorite boy band. And it used to be that things would just fade over time because we didn't have the resources or we don't have the ability to keep calling them to attention. But today, things are lost because of the overwhelming amounts of information and resources. So if a song isn't covered by a new artist, it's not brought back to attention. If a video game, movie, or TV show isn't rebooted, it's forgotten. But if I want my kids to know a reference of mine, or a song that I'm singing, or even a random TV commercial about a super soaker from my childhood, I can just Google search it and show them. I get to curate my values, however misguided, so that they can be remembered and passed down to the next generation. We will pass down what we value. What is remembered is an indicator of what was valued. And to this point, I'm thankful that society has decided to value Star Wars over the Spice Girls. (laughs) But even these things, over time, if we stop rebooting, If we stop recalling, if we stop referencing, they will fade off into obscurity. If not remembered, recalled, 
and renewed, it is soon forgotten. This is the lesson that Israel is learning at the start of Judges. The nation at large was following and serving the Lord through the days of Joshua, but Joshua died. And then there were other elders who outlived him, and the people followed those elders, and they served the Lord, but they too died. And after them comes a generation who did not know the Lord, nor did they know the mighty saving work of the Lord. What was valued in the faithful generation was not remembered and renewed in the following generation. Sure, they didn't have the kinds of archives of information that we have today, no smartphones to give reminders, no search engine to recall the law, but God gave them signposts. He gave them symbols that told stories like 12 stones stacked by the River Jordan. He gave them feasts and festivals. He gave them the Shema, which was to be a signpost to them and their kids, to be rehearsed morning and night, to be instilled in the next generation. They had what they needed to be faithful and to remember God's faithfulness, but they forgot. The book of Judges has a double introduction of sorts. It's not going to be as clean cut as I'm about to describe it, but I think this is an easy way to think about it. Chapter one brings the reader up to speed with the historical background to set the stage. And chapter two introduces the reader to the spiritual setting of Israel. And it gives us a look into where the story is going to take us. Verse 10 in particular sets the stage spiritually in this introduction. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It's like that voiceover at the beginning of a TV show that brings you up to speed and tells you uh, what's going to happen. Like Israel, the next generation. It gives the conflict, it builds the tension, it tells you where we're going, it tells you what's at stake. As we dive into this spiritual introduction of Judges, we should be asking some very pointed questions for our day. What happens when a leading generation dies? What will be remembered? What will be forgotten? What was the disconnect here? Are, are we in that same danger of the Lord being forgotten in the next generation? But I want you also to be on the lookout for God's side of the spiritual introduction. We're going to see the worst of the worst of man's rebellion against God. But in that darkness, we see the light of his saving grace, his unwavering faithfulness, his steadfast love for his people over and over and over again. The people have forgotten but the Lord reveals his work to a new generation through a cycle of redemption. Let's take a look at 11 through 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. So that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned. 
and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. If you've been part of our adult Bible fellowship study this year, the status of their worship should not be surprising to you. Because sin entered the world and has severed our perfect worship of God. But you and I have been created as worshiping beings, constantly pouring out devotion and giving glory. But if our worship has been severed with God, then we will give that outpouring of devotion to created things or to false gods or demonic manifestations of our deep desires. One generation worshipped and served God, the next generation served Baal and the Ashtaroth, the god and goddess of the surrounding nations. So who's to blame? Is it on the past generation or the new generation? I think it's an important question, especially as we seek to apply this today. One thing we see is that one generation's faithfulness doesn't sanctify the following generation. The judgment that the next generation receives is fully theirs because of their rebellion. You cannot presume upon the faith of your parents and your grandparents. The next generation must know God for themselves and be acquainted personally with his works. And while each generation must experience God for themselves, we do inherit paths of faith from the generation before us, for better or for worse. Faithfulness could very well breed further faithfulness, but likewise, hypocrisy can breed further hypocrisy in the coming generation. What is clear about the beginning of Judges is that Joshua's generation had faith in the Lord and they experienced his mighty deeds. However, the theme of chapter one was that they failed to be fully faithful to the Lord. They trusted the Lord, they saw some great things happen on the one hand, and on the other, they compromised, and they failed to complete the conquest of Canaan that the Lord had commanded. So think about the kind of faith that's being passed down here. A faith that says, I believe in God, but I know better in some areas. I don't know if I agree with everything. I don't know if God really meant to take out everyone. I mean, my kids are dating these Canaanites. They have so much fun at these Baal festivals. They can't be that bad, right? There's an incomplete faithfulness. There's compromise. There's hypocrisy. The faith learned by the next generation is that lip service is okay. Maybe Yahweh is good for some things, but I can supplement with Baal. It is a scary idea that the areas that have lacked repentance might speak most strongly to the next generation about our faith. D.A. Carson has such a great anecdote for how this happens in the church, too. This is an excerpt from his book, Basics for Believers. He says, in a fair bit of Western evangelicalism, there is a worrying tendency to focus on the periphery. Periphery meaning the things that come alongside the faith but are not the faith itself. And then he goes on to tell about his colleague who characterizes the Mennonite church from generation to generation. He says this, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation assumed the gospel but identified with the entailments. 
the following generation denied the gospel. The entailments became everything. Assuming this sort of scheme for evangelicalism, one suspects that large swaths of the movement are lodged in the second step with some drifting toward the third, meaning assuming the gospel, moving towards denying the gospel. And he concludes with this. What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? Today there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or another, Abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination either for or against, economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version. And then countries have a full agenda of urgent peripheral demands. And not for a moment am I suggesting that we not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them. But when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? The disconnect that happened from generation to generation in Israel, and is equally as likely for us today, is a disconnect of values. If not remembered, recalled, and renewed, it is soon forgotten. If the next generation is taught to value the periphery of the faith, the centrality of the faith is soon forgotten. If we model hypocrisy and compromise, that will deepen in the following generation. Israel disconnected the benefits of their salvation from the requirements of God's commands. We too must learn not to rest on the laurels of the peaceful gathering that God has so graciously provided for us today, but we must be faithful to the commands to go forth to disciple and baptize, teach and obey, not only to our kids, but to every tribe, tongue, and nation, that the next generation may not value merely the benefits of our faith, but would learn to walk with God and know his saving work personally. It is critical that we would be proactive with instilling our value of the gospel into the next generation. We must disciple, we must mentor, and in that we teach the centrality of the gospel, but we also must repent for where we've gotten it wrong, where we have had half-hearted faithfulness. We must make sure to do our part of keeping the gospel central in the memory of the next generation but our prayer is just as critical. We must be fervent in prayer that the next generation would own it for themselves and know God and his saving work personally in their lives. Another theme that we will see throughout this book is that we do not have a God who sits by idly. He responds to this evil rebellion. His anger is kindled against his people. This is not something to merely be swept under the rug God shows them, shows that what they treated as no big deal is a great deal to him. So he brings nations to overtake them, to overwhelm them. His hand was against them so that they could not prosper or succeed. These are the very curses that he guaranteed when they entered into covenant together. The people were in terrible distress. This generation did not know the Lord. They did not know the work that he did for Israel. 
So they find themselves at their wit's end, at rock bottom, oppressed, enslaved. Does this remind you of anything? A few generations before, Israel found themselves in the same spot in Egypt. And it was in their lowest that God showed his great saving power. His faithfulness to his promises, his love for his people. And if a generation arises that doesn't know him, he is faithful to show them. God will stay true to his promise to bring a redeemer through the nation of Israel. They cry out to the Lord in their distress, and where a human would just turn a cold shoulder or give a look of smug satisfaction of they get what they deserve, God is moved to compassion. They do not know him, and so he is going to show them. They will know their suffering and their sin apart from God, and they will know his salvation, his faithfulness, and his love. Let's look at 16 through 19 here. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The Lord was moved to pity by their groanings. He raised up judges to deliver them. Men and women whom God used to deliver Israel, to fight for them, to bring judgment and vengeance upon the land. We get a real mixed bag of behavior in this book. A lot of times the salvation of the people is going to be told intermixed with complicated moral tales that just reveal how human these people are. So let us remember these words, that when God raised up a judge, he was with that judge. He used that person to save Israel from their enemies. However, we will see that these people are deeply flawed and broken. They will be a constant reminder that God's salvation is not complete in a judge or a king until Jesus comes and does it perfectly. Israel cries out in their distress, and God is faithful to raise up a deliverer. But Israel is quick to turn their back on God soon after. And so this introduces us to the cycle. Israel cries out. God delivers. The judge dies. Israel turns their back on God worse than before. Distress, salvation, rebellion. Israel is finding something in this Canaanite culture that draws their hearts out so strongly that they're just helpless to resist. God called them into this land and warned them of the stakes. He called them to drive the Canaanites out. Don't intermingle. Don't intermarry. The failure to remain distinct from that world is what corrupted God's people. And we have the same calling on us as Christians. We are called into this world but not to be worldly. 
one commentator had this great observation. A boat is called to the water. It is meant to be in the water. The problem is not when the boat is in water, but when water gets into the boat. We are called into this world, but we must not let this world get into us. The Lord saves his people over and over again, but Israel is misunderstanding this salvation. They misunderstand that this salvation is meant to bring them back on course, to be faithful to the covenant, to be faithful to God's commandments. But they're also misunderstanding the God who is giving them the salvation. And we see this because they are just as likely to serve and worship Baal, and maybe even more so. A God who boasts prosperous harvest, but has no power to actually deliver that. A God who is local to this land, rather than the God who takes up resident in the tabernacle wherever they go. When God entered into covenant with Israel, he had these words, which will be up on the screen. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. All the earth is his. They are taking Canaan because it already belongs to God. And so much of the issue of this conquest is missing the point that God is in charge. And when spies came and looked at the land and they saw that there were giants there, and they came back and they're like, uh... There's some really big dudes already living there. This must be their land. And then they intermingle with the Canaanites, and the Canaanites have already built these high places and these altars to Baal. And so, well, Baal must have already claimed it. It must be his land. And they're missing the fact that Baal can't even hold a candle to God. And it's so silly, but these things happen to Christians too. And since I have a captive audience today, I'll pick on music for a minute. Several years ago, someone gave me some literature that said not only that drums are of the devil, but any music that has a syncopated rhythm. So, of course, never use drums in worship and only have music that's going to hit on every downbeat, a.k.a. the most boring music imaginable. (laughs) This, This kind of thinking creeps in when you forget that music belongs to God. He created it. He created rhythm and time and melodies and harmonies. There is not a note that you could sing that belongs to someone other than Jesus. There is not a rhythm that could be played that is not under the rule of heaven. And so you might remember that with rock music. And here we are today with drums and guitars, perhaps to the chagrin of some of you. But it hasn't been long, and it's probably still prevalent today, about hip-hop and rap. Once again, are we convinced that Satan could be clever enough to invent rhymes? Did anyone but our Lord create meter, stanzas, and poetry? And when I think about these things, I just praise God for the men and women through church history who were undeterred by the Christians who misunderstood this God that they serve. Because being in the world, they saw drums and guitars and synthesizers, rhythms, blues, and rhymes all belong to God. And they sought to redeem those art forms and give them back to God as worship. So we have to ask, do you forget the God that you serve? We're not ignorant 
to the schemes and the propaganda of the devil out in the world. We see the stranglehold he has on schools and government, money, work. But do we for a second think that any lie or propaganda of the devil can rival our God? All the earth is his. These buildings and land, they might change hands many times before Christ returns, but Jesus is bringing them under his rule. And we get to bring proclamations that this land already belongs to him, and we're urging others to join this everlasting kingdom. Your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, it all belongs to Jesus already. Now, Satan might have a strong influence. He might boast great power, but don't for a second believe the lie that he is in charge. Baal does not rival God. Satan is not God's opposite. Enemies, for sure, but there's no power like God's. There is no salvation like what we have in Christ. Don't let anything rival that in your hearts and minds. Do not shrink back in fear or submit to the evil in this land because you are already on the winning side of the spiritual conquest. Let's look at 19 through 23. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. We've been introduced to the literary theme of oppression, distress, salvation, rebellion. And we now see the spiritual dimensions that are at play and are going to be evident in this book. And we can call this the downward spiral. With every successive judge, the following rebellion left them more corrupt than they were previously. And this will be evident as we go through this book and the stories reveal that downward spiral of corruption. As we see the likeness of our own flesh in the people of Israel, let us take caution from their behavior. They take for granted their salvation in part because they think they're mostly in control. Maybe they just need a little boost from the Lord. They can quickly leave God behind because they didn't see the depth of their corruption. The hypocrisy breeds more hypocrisy. Compromise breeds more compromise. One step won't be that bad. I can allow myself this. I can indulge in this. So let us not be ignorant of sin's schemes. Sin is like an undertow in the ocean. You take what seems to be a small step, but then you look back and you are much further from shore than you realized and probably intended. It will always take you further. It will always take you deeper. In our rebellious flesh, let us not be ignorant of this. We need to learn from Israel. 
And in these verses, the Lord reveals his divine purposes. The nations bend to his will. So he's going to use them for his purposes. And in this case, it means testing his people. And if this idea is new to you, don't picture some vindictive professor from your past who just set you up to fail. Test is the best rendering in English, but it carries the connotation of proving and purifying like you would a precious metal. In other words, you are revealing what it is made of. The Lord is all-knowing. He's, he's not ignorant to whether Israel is going to be faithful or what they're going to prove to be. The testing and revealing is ultimately for the people themselves. The Lord's grace shines through despite this holy judgment. He is faithful to woo his people, to bring them back through affliction. The affliction merely becomes an agent of God's sanctifying grace rather than a barrier that separates us from it. And this idea is not foreign to the Christian. Paul speaks of an affliction that he prays to be taken away, and yet God has determined it better to be used to draw him nearer, that he may know the grace of God more dearly, that he would learn just how sufficient God's grace is for him. And likewise, Peter encourages the church in the dispersion that the various trials that, they, that have grieved them, the trials are refining their faith that their faith would be revealed as all the more pure and imperishable as they get nearer to eternity. And the difference between us and Israel here is that our afflictions come not as the result of judgment, but rather the discipline of a parent to a child. We get to take God at his word because he is not passive-aggressive. He doesn't withhold his intentions. We're not trying to discern his motives. We can trust him as the wise parent to know what is best for his children. We see his heart and his faithfulness to Israel here in Judges. And that same grace is for us today with the added benefit that all anger and wrath have been removed, crucified on the cross, and buried with Christ never to reign again. Because Christ has kept the covenant on our behalf, we don't receive curses from the Lord his wrath has been removed, his anger has been satisfied, but his faithfulness and his care remain. The section is going to close out with the beginning of chapter 3 here. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamoth. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Our section concludes today with the new setting of the book. Understanding the history that brought them here and the spiritual stakes of this next generation were given here the plot of the book. 
this is Israel's new normal. This generation did not know the wars that brought them here. And they had not experienced the conquest that was left incomplete. So, these nations were not removed. The five lords of the Philistines will be their adversaries. And they will live among them. God will test them. They will fail. They will continue in their rebellious ways. Lord, have mercy. On this side of redemptive history, it can be a little confusing as Christians how we're to view these stories in Judges. The book looks forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. And we, on the other hand, get to see this book through the lens of the cross. That Jesus accomplishes what Israel could not. That he completes what a judge could not. And we're not waiting on another savior or another deliverer. His work was complete. The enemies are rendered powerless. He ended the cycle of rebellion. And he has kept the covenant. So because Jesus has already accomplished it, let us not forget his salvation. Or take it for granted. Let us remember and not fall back into sin. Let us move forward in obedience. And now as we move to communion, could those serving please come forward at this time. We've seen today how important it is to remember the Lord from generation to generation where he gave Israel signposts and festivals and feasts, he has given us signs as well. And this simple sign in front of us is to be the most powerful. The sign of the new covenant that's built on better promises, built on what Christ accomplished on our behalf and not what is left undone. So if you have trusted Christ for salvation, this table is for you. This is not my invitation. This is Christ's invitation. You were once his enemy, caught in the cycle of rebellion. And in the midst of your turning away at your deepest and darkest oppression of sin, he had compassion on you and sent his son to deliver you. So come, eat, drink, remember your salvation today. Give thanks to the God who saved you. And if you have not trusted in Christ, please let the tray pass from you. Take time to reflect on the saving power of God and his invitation to you to submit yourself to his rule and to receive his grace. And with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for your words here. Thank you for your faithfulness. How in all of our unfaithfulness, your faithfulness shines through. Your grace and your mercy and your compassion um, they rest upon us. They stick out here because we, <laughs> we are so rebellious in our hearts and we are so different, Lord. Thank you for being stable when we're unstable. I thank you for the great sign of grace inviting us to this table to eat as friends and as children in your house. Let us take this now with remembrance, with gratefulness for what you have done through Christ. In Jesus' name.